Make sure I hit record here so Andrew's happy with me. Did you hear that, Andrew? Okay. Sorry. You asked me to record it. Uh, good morning. Uh, would somebody open us up in prayer and then we'll get started? not Andrew. I am clearly more attractive and taller. Just saying that as close to the microphone as possible so you can hear that. Um, no, my name is Jason Suddeth. To, to some of you, I'm probably a familiar face. Um, I sort of have been at Hilton Head Prez for 10 years. Uh, 10 years ago, I moved down here as a young, single, handsome young man and uh, was here for seven years. God blessed me with an awesome wife who I met through this church. And um, we moved to Charleston th- a little over three and a half years ago. And we've been back for about six months. Uh, I work, I don't work through the church if you're visiting or if you don't know, I don't work at the church. I work at uh, Hilton Head Christian Academy at the school just around the corner. I'm the campus pastor over at Hilton Head Christian. Um, so my job is somewhere a mix of youth ministry and a dean position at a school. It's a really strange job, but I absolutely love it. Um, So I'm really excited to be here with you today. Uh, Just a little bit about me, just to give you a little further. We've got two kids. One of them's here today. If you saw me, my wife stayed at home this morning because we're leaving town and life was a little chaotic at the house. So we've got a uh, a six-month-old and we have a two and a half year old. So I brought the two and a half year old with me, which is just one of those wonderful reminders of how much better my wife is at everything. Uh, but we made it in, but we were dragging stuff and things were falling out. It's like, leave it behind, just go, just go. And, uh, but we're here, so yeah. So these are my two uh, little ones. That's Wyatt and that's Adeline, and they're pretty awesome, except three o'clock in the morning when they both decide to wake up. Um, but. Anyway, so I'm here with you today instead of Andrew. We're going to keep talking down the same um, direction. We're, we're heading down this Reformation class, and I know y'all are coming out of the solas, correct? We should be someone who's been here for them. We've built on all these uh, sola scriptura. We've built on um, Solgratus and all these other ones that we've been building. And now Andrew has basically given me, I'm not going to call it the layup, but if I was going to come in and substitute teach for him one time, like, this is the one I would want, okay? This is the one that I get to come in here and, like, give the big, awesome closing to it. So I'm really excited. We're going to talk today about Soli Deo Gloria. This is, to the Reformation, was one of the keys to not just what they believed, but now you've heard a lot about theologically where they came from, how they put the gospel together, how they put like that together. I get to tell you, this is the one that put life together. This was the bottom line that put life together. So I'm really excited about this today. Um, so we're going to walk through it. So let me give you a couple of goals. These are my two goals for class. Uh, it's one of these things. I am a teacher for the most part, or used to be a teacher. Now I only teach about 45 minutes a day. 
Uh, for the last 10 years of my life, I've taught for seven hours a day. And now I teach for 45 minutes a day, which is really very, very strange. Now when people listen to me, it's by choice instead of force. Um, so it's very strange. But one of the things I always did in class is goals. Everything, where are we going? What are we trying to do? Here's my two goals today. All right, They're very, I think, simple. And I, I've played with these words a little bit. But here's the two thoughts I had. Here's the goal number one. I want you to develop or further develop an intense yearning for God's glory. I almost used the word worry there instead of yearning because I wanted to convey the sense of the anticipation and the not the desperation for it, but yeah, I think desperation is not a bad word there either, that there'd be something inside of you that so wanted God's glory to show up, to be manifest, for people to see it, that it, it, it almost ached a little bit. And I compared that a little bit to worry in my brain, and I played with that word, but like, no, 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 that sounds like we don't think it's going to happen. And that sounds a little faithless. So I went with the word yearning. Like there was just this inner desire for this. You, ha- you just know you wanted God's glory to be manifest. Um, the best thing I can compare that to just off the top is uh, just food, is hunger. I, one of the things, some of y'all know Doug Langhouse. Uh, he's the headmaster of Hilton Head Christian. And um, I've known him since we were about 16. And when we were 19, we took a trip to Chicago. One thing you don't know about him is he is, oh, what's the nice way of saying cheap? Um, Frugal. Now, he's very generous to other people, but with his own money for himself, he's very frugal. Okay? And so we drove from... Is that not what they say, It is. Absolutely it is. We drove from Columbia, South Carolina to Chicago, Illinois, and we did not stop for food. We had some, like, Cheez-Its in the car, you know what I mean? And it was like, oh, good, this is really going to get the job done. Uh, we Columbia to Chicago without stopping for food. We stopped for gas, but no food. And then we stopped at a pizza place up in Chicago, which I highly recommend. And I will tell you, pizza has never tasted as good as it did in that moment. And I remember we waited like 25 minutes from the pizza. And we were, there's four of us, and we're basically clawing at the table waiting for it to get there. That's, a, that's yearning, okay? There's this something inside of me that says, I need this, right? I want to see this right now. I want it right now. That's a yearning. So one goal number one, I would love to see you develop a yearning, this inner kind of like hunger for God's glory to be made manifest. Second thing is this. I would love to see you this help create an intense enjoyment of God's glory. Not just some pie in the sky, God should be glorified. But man, what a joy it is to experience God's glory. So that's our two goals coming out of this uh, as we're going to go through this. So let me walk through a little bit of what is Soli Deo Gloria. So what is it? Does anybody know, just off the top of their head, what, what this means? Glory. God, glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. Yeah, that's what it means. It means glory to God alone. Um, this means that all glory goes to Him. Now, what other religions in the world would at least in some way reflect this idea, even if they changed the name there slightly? Islam. Islam would absolutely be on board with this as long as it's their picture of who God is. Who else? Judaism. Judaism, for sure. Obviously, they were based out of Judaism 
Uh, and some of our scripture is going to reflect that as well. All three will come from this. Now, the big question that comes out of that, though, is what actually is God's glory? Because there's so many of us glorify God. I've heard that phrase my entire life. You know, give glory to God. I've heard that over and over. So what is it? So here's how we defined it according to um, the Catechism. The radiant splendor of God displayed in his character and works. So that's what we're looking for. God's glory is his radiant splendor, and it's displayed in two ways. Who he is and what he's done. All right, we see it both ways. In just the nature of whose character is and then what he's done. Uh, if you want to make this make sense in a good, solid, loving marriage. You not only love who your wife is, but you will love what she does. And those two kind of overlap together. Sometimes you can't tell who she is makes her do what she does. And what she does sort of defines who she is. So that's the glory of God. It's this mix of just who he is. And because he is this, here's what he does. And he does this because who he is. It's that kind of combo right there. Okay. And so the next question for us then is this. What actually is glorifying God? Okay, if that's God's glory, what in the world are we supposed to do with it? And that's where we get into this. Here is our job. And here is sole deo gloria. Here's what we do. We reflect or celebrate that splendor. We reflect or celebrate it. We act almost as the moon in that scenario. The moon carries none of its own light, and yet if you go outside tonight, I'm sure it's been incredible the last few nights. We live in Bluffton, and just, I, like I said, I've been in Charleston for three years, where I don't think I saw a star in three years. And to come back to Bluffton, Bluffton gets so dark at night. And my wife went out walking the other night, and we just looked up, and you could see, it felt like every star in the sky. And it was one of those nights where we had that big moon. And you look at that moon, and it seems like it's producing light. It seems like God at night clicks a switch and the moon like turns up. It's just reflecting light from the sun. That's essentially our, one of our jobs. God is glorified. People see it reflected in us. And then they go, they don't give credit to the moon, they give credit to the sun. And the second way is just to celebrate it. And this is really enjoyable. And I think sometimes we don't think about this for glorifying God. One of the ways you glorify God it's just by celebrating what he is and who, what he's done. You don't, it's no responsibility except reaction. Um, you're going to go do this in about, you know, an hour and 15 minutes. You're going to go reflect. You're going to go be the moon. And if you don't know about in a worship service, that's essentially what you're doing. You're reflecting the glory of God. And so all you are, you're just celebrating, which comes off of reflection. So it's one of the great things, and I just, man, as you head down to worship service in a few minutes, just even take that with you a little bit, like, what are you about to go do? That's a pretty great thing. So that's what it is. That's what we're supposed to do. Where did we get this from? Where did we get this from? Now we're going to go to scripture a little bit. I want to look some of these just to tell you, all right, if we're going to say that all of life goes to this, where did we pull this from? So we're going to go through several scriptures today. If you have a Bible, I would appreciate the help. Um, 
And if you don't, that's okay. I've got some of them up on the screen. Uh, we're going to start with we're going to start with Psalm 19. We're going to start with Psalm 19. So if you got a Bible, let's go there. So why is glorifying God so important? Let's let Scripture kind of answer that for us. Alright, I'm going to start with Psalm 19. This is it up here, if you can read it. I know not everybody's going to be able to read that on the screen, but if you can't, look down at your own Bible. Here's what it says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out His speech, and night to night reveals His knowledge. There is no speech, nor are the words whose voice is not heard. You get this illustration here, this picture here of God's glory is just being proclaimed from the skies above and it's just pouring out. It's just pouring out. Day after day, pours out speech. It just rolls out naturally. Sort of the unstoppable, uncontainable picture of that. I almost went to that, whatever that Laura Story song is there. Um, but it's just this picture of God just, it's just pouring out and pouring out and pouring out. And it doesn't stop. Um, if you've ever had a, a pipe burst in your house, um, my parents, I've always felt bad for them, they decided probably 10 years ago they were going to redo their shower. And they, it was, and they made this beautiful, gigantic shower. And it had, I think it had six different heads on it. Um, Anyway, not that you can really be that impressed by a shower, but I would go over to their house just to shower because it, anyway, y'all don't, want, y'all don't want to hear about me talking about shower. But anyway, it's, I would go to shower. And then about a year, it had all this nice tile and it was set up and it was beautifully done. And the guy who built it, they really loved the job he did. And then about two years after it was done, they came home from church on a Sunday and they looked at their floor and out of one of the walls from the shower, a pipe had burst. And it was flowing. Water was just gushing. And my dad, he went, you know, took the water off because he's smarter than I am. I don't know what I would do. I probably would have frozen. Uh, and then he started ripping drywall out. And you could just see all this water. But before he turned that water off, it was just gushing out. That's the picture of God's glory here. Day to day he pours out speech. Night to night he reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words who have not heard. His glory has flooded the entire earth. This is the picture you have there. His glory is, you can't get away from it. You don't want to believe in it? It's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there. That's the picture behind that. All right, next one. Let's go to Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, verse 8. We are going to jump around a good bit today. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. 42. My praises to others. Good. Could you read that one more time for me really loud? Sure. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another for my praise to others. Alright. How does God feel about his own glory according to this passage? Yeah, he's a big fan. He likes it. He is possessive of his own glory. I am the Lord. I, I love the simplicity of this, this verse. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no one else. My glory I give to no other. Nor my praise to a carved idol. I want you to see, not, God doesn't take it seriously. He takes it 
possessively. There's no sharing in this glory. He holds this very serious. Now think of all the things that God has been willing to share with humanity. What's something God willingly shares with humanity? His, literally, himself in a sense, in his son. He was willing to share his son with us. What else? Love. His love. He just lavishes. If we did a study on love today and just said, all right, we're going to look at every scripture on love in the Bible, we would never get out of this room. We would be here until next Sunday. He's willing to share his love, his son. What else will he share with us? His entire creation. Everything. How many of you guys got up this morning and walked outside and were like, is this February? This is amazing. You know what I mean? And then God lets us live here on top of it where we, you know, can just driving over the bridge this morning. Every morning I love driving over the bridge. I come, I basically go to work when the sun's coming up and I love it every morning. He shares that with me every morning. It's crazy. What else does he share with us? Yeah. It's just another thought, though. I know we often think of someone, you know, like a person who demands glory, and we know the negative, you know, sinful connotations mm-hmm. of that. And I don't know, you know, one way I think of sometimes thinking about that is, is to think about the Trinity and how they glorify each other. And that it's not a selfish, I mean, not True. a selfish way of thinking of Yes, and we are going to directly answer that question. Like we're going to, as boldly as can be said, we're going to ask very quietly and politely: Is God selfish? Uh, and I think we have a very clear answer to it. We've got that for sure. Yes. This is. I mean, you think about what this is. Everything. This is. He calls it in Peter. Everything we need for life and godliness. And I mean, just let that like rattle around your brain. Right here, right here is everything you need for life and godliness. His love, his son, his word, his creation. One that escapes me a lot of the time, he shared relationship with us. He lives in relationship, father, son, spirit, in perfection. And he gave to us, even to people who live in full rebellion against him, people who want nothing to do with him, can experience an element of him through common grace, through relationship. Through living in relationship. He lives in it. He let us share in it. What won't he share? He's not sharing his glory. What does that tell you about how he feels about his glory? If he will willingly share his son and he he is unwilling to share his glory. That should be one of those like, oh, he means this. This is heavy. This has weight to it. So I hope you sort of see that out of Isaiah 42 there. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm not sharing my glory with some carved statue. You don't get it. The statue doesn't get it. I get it. That's heavy. All right, let's move on. Let's look at a couple more. Oh, oh, well, let me read. Is that the one I want? Yeah, let's start with this one. All right, this is Daniel 4. We're not going to read through the entire chapter of Daniel 4. I know it's a really creepy picture. It's a very famous picture, actually. Uh, But actually, out of Daniel chapter 4, we're talking about a man named Nebuchadnezzar. You might know a little bit of the story of Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so he is the head of what kingdom? Babylon. He's the head of Babylon. That was Nebuchadnezzar. So he is this historically, even if 
let's say you don't believe an ounce of the Bible, if you want to find out about Nebuchadnezzar, there's a mountain of historical records on Nebuchadnezzar because of his importance. And in this, there's this story where he, Daniel, he comes to him, he has a, tree, a dream about a tree. Daniel comes to him and sort of gives him a warning of, hey, what God says is you need to not, you need to glorify God and not yourself. You, if you keep glorifying yourself, God is going to find a way to keep you from doing it. So, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen. This is what Nebuchadnezzar did instead. Look at verse 30. Let's go to 31, I guess. So he's in his royal palace, and then we get to verse 31. The words were still on his... Oh, here's what he said. I better go to verse 30. This is what he said. Is it not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for my glory and for my majesty? He stands in the top of his palace and goes, Look what I've done. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. You should all be afraid. This is awesome. And then this is God's response. This is, this is one of those great... I teach high school kids. I taught middle school for a long time. These are the stories I love to share with middle schoolers because they're so bizarrely weird that middle schoolers love them. Um, and I guess I'm bizarrely weird because I love them. Uh, third one. The words were still on his lips. I love that. It just is right there. When a voice came from heaven, this is what is decreed for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from, from your people and will live as a wild animal. You will eat grass like a cow. Seven times will pass until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of men and give them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people. He ate grass. His body was drenched with the dew from the heaven until his hair grew like that of feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. That's a fun way to spend some time. Um, and if you want me to sit here and explain to you what happened, there's all these theories, they make a great class for that. It's called the class on Daniel. Uh, 34, here's the part I'm interested in. At the end of this time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes to heaven, and my sanity was restored, and then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power from heaven and the people of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here is this godless king and this godless people who invaded and destroyed God's land. And he said, I'm holding you accountable for my glory. That's crazy. I mean, this, of all the people on earth, well, God won't care about him. He doesn't care about God. God wanted glory from Nebuchadnezzar. All right, the next one, one more example just to sort of prove this to you. This is Herod Agrippa. It's a different, if, if you go into New Testament history, you have to figure out which Herod is the Herod in this story. It's, it's all kind of fun. Herod and Mary, common names apparently. Um, so this is Herod Agrippa, and I, I'll just, this one's up on the screen if you don't feel like, I know I'm giving your fingers a workout so far um, up here. Let me give you the basics of the story. Herod Agrippa was the king during the time of Acts. He died in AD 44, and he was the king uh, post 
he was king from AD 41 to 44. So if you're reading the book of Acts, he was an important figure in there for about three years. Um, and at one point, a crowd, he's the king of Israel, a crowd before him says, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man, after he spoke. This isn't God speaking to us, or man speaking, this is God. And God hears this, and Herod didn't do anything to say, hey, no, 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 just a man. I'm just a man like you. Yes, I'm a king, but I'm just a man. This was God's reaction, verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He wasn't eaten immediately by worms, anyone who got that visual. and like, the, weren't like the little attack worms that jumped in or anything like that. Uh, it just means he was dead. A godless king in a godless country was knocked out for this. Herod should have known the kind of God he was dealing with. He knew the Torah. He knew the Old Testament. And yet, he did not give glory to God. And God, like that. That's big. I hope you see the weightiness of this subject. Okay? If nothing else, if you walk out of this room, and what you pull out of it is how deeply God cares for his own glory. This has not been a massive failure for me. So, as you go into worship, in just a few minutes, I'm going to keep reflecting everything back to worship because that's one of the ways we, we sort of give God glory. There's a million ways, but that's one of the primary ways. It's why we worship. It's why we come together. So as you go into worship, take that weightiness with you. So outside of that, outside of that, and if you look down at your sheet, if you've got a sheet there, the next question I have down there is, and you don't have to use mine, but I want to ask this. How does God achieve this? How is God's glory achieved? What does he do to give himself glory? Yes, sir. He uses his people. He uses his people. Give me an example. How so? Yeah, we come to church and we worship. You're exactly right. He called us to be here. It's not we didn't accidentally all decide, like, hey, it's Sunday. Do you want to get up and go to church and worship today? We're like, hey, you're we all chose Sunday. Who would have thought? What are the chances? Like, that was he has a plan and a design of that. Absolutely. What else? Yes, sir. The psalmist speaks of all creation declaring his glory and majesty. He does it literally through the creation itself. Um, it's one of the great things. I I teach high school students and um, a number of our kids aren't Christians. Uh, it's, we're a Christian school, but you don't have to be a Christian to attend. And so we have, from all perspectives, spiritual, non-spiritual, it's, it's a really interesting mix to teach Bible to this group, because in some ways it's like missions every day. It's, it's awesome and frustrating from moment to moment. Um, but you know, I can look at all of them and say, who's been to the Grand Canyon? Who's been to, you know, who's been to a beach? You go, you know that feeling where you just go, oh, what, this is amazing. And every one of them, no matter where they are, um, I've taught every, you know, atheist to Christian to in wherever you are in between that. And they'll go, yeah. And they'll get, you know, there's something in creation that calls to us, isn't it? Calls to us for glory for something bigger than us. And what, I mean, what a cool display of God's glory. All right, what else? How else, is, how else does God achieve glory? Or show glory? 
what would you say the primary would be? What was his primary way of revealing or showing his glory? That would be my answer. I think God's fullest picture of glory is through Christ. And that's where we're going to go. So I'm going to show you just a couple of minor ones, and we're going to get to the major one, okay? So let's go through here. How is God's glory achieved? Well, let's not go there yet. Apparently I don't have my PowerPoint. Let's look down at our little thing. Let's go with number one. Number one on here says, there's two types of ways he achieves glory, okay? There is ultimate ends and proximate ends. Ultimate ends and proximate ends. And this may make sense. It may not make sense. We'll kind of see. Uh, please feel free to ask me a question. So the ultimate end is worship. So, for example, but you could glorify God through a number of proximate ends. So the example, and I took this from Andrew, um, his example here was filling the gas tank with car. The gas tank with car? Gas tank <laughs> in your car um, to drive to church. What's the ultimate end? Drive to church to worship. What's the proximate end? We worship God through the actions that get us to what we would call worship, even the act of filling the gas tank, even the act of waking up in the morning and getting dressed and preparing your mind and preparing your heart. There's a number of proximate ends that could have gotten you here to the ultimate end, which is worship. John Piper very famously said, uh, missions, what's the purpose of missions? Does anyone know? Anyone heard that John Piper quote? Missions exist because... Worship doesn't. The end goal, the ultimate goal is worship. The proximate way we glory, glorify God is missions. You glory God through going in the missions field and preaching the gospel. Why? So that the ultimate end is met, which is worship. So whether it's missions, whether it's um, real estate, whether it's raising children to glorify God, whether it's walking through your high school, whether it's, well, I've got high schoolers in the room like, whether it's being kind to that really annoying teacher, and you know who they are, because kids point out to me that I'm that person all the time, uh, but like, whether that kindness is approximate end to the ultimate end that, man, I, that teacher would worship God, or that God would receive worship by how I live. There's proximate and ultimate. Uh, it's the two terms that are commonly used. Second one in there, if you want to look there. The second one is Christ. And I would like us to look at this scripture. There's a couple of these scriptures I want us to see. John 17. John 17. This is what Christ said in John 17. Anyone, once someone has it, if someone could read that, that would be awesome. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on, the, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Awesome. Do you see the glory going back and forth there? I glorify you. You glorify me. So Christ was the way, I would say the primary way, God's glory was revealed here. That is your primary example of God's glory. Christ made it manifest. Emmanuel, God with us. It means his glory came with him. It's kind of the idea behind it. 
Uh, next one. This one, I, and you don't need to turn there. I went there for us. This is Isaiah 48. I just want to read you verse 9 through 11, okay? God says, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to cut you off. It's really interesting. Why did God not pour wrath out on these people? Because of His loving kindness? Because of His gentleness and His compassion? Did anybody catch? Why did He not pour wrath out on these people? I'll read it one more time. Somebody catch this. This is pretty cool. That's it. For my own name's sake, I delayed my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you. If you want another example of this, um, you know when the Israelites were supposed to go into the promised land and they said no and they wandered for 40 years? Does anyone, this would be completely random if you knew this, but does anyone know Moses' art God said, I'm going to destroy all of them, Moses, and I'm going to start over with you, which I, if I was Moses, would take that deal. Because if you've ever read the book of Numbers, they are wildly whining and annoying and they're hard to listen to. Now, I would have said, deal, let's go, let's do it right now. Where can I sign? Let's shake hands. Instead, Moses makes an argument. He says, God, don't do it, don't do it. Does anybody remember what his argument was? What, what was it? What was the argument? Yes. God, they'll say you failed. Yeah. They'll question your name. Don't. No, 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 no. Have patience with them. Not because I love these people. That's my sister over there. Wasn't his argument. His argument was, God, if you wipe them out, people will question you. And so why sometimes does God not let sin be punished in that moment? Because in some way, his patience gives him glory. Yeah, and I think in these passages, we're seeing how God glorifies himself by, mm-hmm. you know, his Yes, absolutely. And it's knowing his covenant. Was there any chance God was going to destroy all those people? No, he had made a covenant promise, hadn't he? He was going to keep his word. Why, why even say that to Moses then? He's working in Moses. And I, I will never speak for God. But, and I know God knew he was going to say it. But as God is glorified, there had to be something in some way eternally where he get you got it. That's it. It's for, all this is for me. Remember that, because going forward, these next 40 years are going to be really, really, really hard. So remember, remember right now, it's all for me, because it's going to be difficult. So even in his patience, it's, yes, he loves us. Yes, he is patient with us because he's a good, loving God. But also, he's a God who wants his own glory. All right, next one. This is Romans 9. This passage I read as a member of First Baptist Church of Columbia, South Carolina. I was in um, college, at a Christian college, and I had a Romans class, and I read this, and I said, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. This messes with my theology a little bit. And it was... And actually, strange, I remember writing a paper on this for school, and my mom edited my papers in college, so there's high schools or whatever, judge me, whatever. She was a great editor, and um, she would look over stuff for me and tell me how to think through it, and I remember her reading that paper and be like, you believe this? And it was, uh, my Baptist mama did not like it. Uh, 921, she still loves me, even though I'm really Presbyterian now. 
921. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for, un, some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath to make his power known, bore with great patience the object of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known and the ob- to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. What way does God show glory in that passage? It's actually a couple ways, but... He's patient with those that he has uh, created for wrathful purposes. He is patient with those he's created... But homie, you said two things. Yeah, you said two things there. He's patient with those he created for wrathful purposes. Does God receive glory by showing the full picture of his character, which includes judgment over sin? Yes. Yes. According to that passage, did God create people, at least partially, for the purpose of displaying his glory by punishing sin? Yes. How do you think that sits with a lot of people? Robert does. Ooh. Yeah. Yes. But you can argue it from Scripture, which is really the, what puts us in a bind every time. I think a lot of us, we think it would be better. Now, the more you know of God, the full picture, it's not better. But with me, and me as a young Christian, especially, I looked at it and go, I don't like that. I don't know. I don't, that doesn't feel right to me. But then when you get the fuller picture of Scripture, of who God is and how He's made it, all of a sudden you see His glory in that, but you also eventually see His love in that. And we'll talk a little bit about this. We're going to ask two really tough questions here in a minute. But you see that in wrath and mercy. Got one tougher than that? No. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, um, the next two, I'm not going to have us read. I just, well, I'm going to have you read one of them because I, I can't be quiet. The first, the next one, go home, read Ephesians 1 through 14. It is the full picture, sort of, of your calling from beginnings of the earth to how you have been saved. And it's his eternal plan for you brings him glory. The plan that was made before the foundations of the earth to bring you to himself, to bring you to glorification, brings him glory. Which, if you look at that plan, absolutely it should. And the last one, and I think this is an important one, I really would like to move on, but I think this is one I've got to cover. Acts 17. Acts 17, 24. And we need to read this, because I think here's where, as I've taught to high school students and college students throughout the year, they get to this point and they go, God sounds kind of needy. Like, God sounds kind of neat. Does he really, is he this, you know, like, insecure God in the sky? He's like, well, you know, and we all have this friend, and I'll look particularly at the high schoolers in the room. You know this friend in particular who is just sort of, they fish for the compliments. You know what I'm talking about? It's just like, oh, well, you know, I mean, I only scored 20 points last night in the game, and it was, you know, it's, I didn't play very well. And what they want you to say is, you scored 20 points. That's awesome. I never scored more than like two. You know, and like that's what they're looking for in that moment. Or they're like, is this, how about this outfit? You know, like, how do, is this okay? Does this make me look like I weigh 100 pounds less than I do? Um, and, they, and, they, and they go, no, 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 no. You look, you look great in that outfit. And some people by this point start to say, is that God? Is God just, he's just, I, I, need, I need some glory. You know, I made these people, and they don't even listen to me. I need to 
All right, better do some stuff to get some glory. Okay, okay. Is that who God is? No. Like, I didn't say weird, like, acting that way or saying that, but that's the perspective a lot of people sort of end up taking when they read this scripture is of a needy God. Acts 17 kind of throws that away. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by hands and is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself, he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else as if he himself needed anything. He is never in need of our worship. He is never in need of our glory. It's not a need, okay? And that we're going to see is we're going to, in a minute we're going to flip it. We're going to see it's actually a gift that he's giving us. But this all leads to this really, really hard question that I'm telling you is asked regularly. And this is not it. If you want to see God's glory in full display, go read Revelation 4 through 5 today. Read about the throne room of God. If you just if you need to be reminded of God's glory, um, go read. Revelation 4 through 5 later, and you're going to say, God doesn't need my glory. He's got it. When you hear the angels and um, the angels coming and repeating their song, Holy, Holies, and they're repeating it, and when you see Christ, the Lamb who was slain but lived, and the glory He receives in all men from all time coming together, when you see the future, you go, oh, He's not in need. He's not in need. This is a great, you probably most of y'all have seen that. It's against altarpiece. I just, it's one of my favorite pieces of art. I'm just going to slide that in there so I seem artistic. Alright. So here's our hard question. I told you we'd get here. Is God selfish? He's a jealous God. He's a jealous... Oh, now hold on. We just heard he's a jealous God. Jealousy is an ugly word in our culture, isn't it? No one wants to be with someone who is jealous. No one wants friends who are jealous. You just told me God is jealous. What do you mean? I need some clarification. You just threw it out there. <laughs> now, you threw it out there. It's from Scripture. Repeatedly, it's from Scripture. Yes. We, we just looked at the Scripture earlier. He does not want to share his glory with anything or anybody else. Period. Period. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old. Um, Mike Holmes is in the room. Uh, Mike's daughter and my daughter are very good friends. They hang out at least once a week because their moms are really good friends. Okay, uh, they are like sisters in every sense. You have sisters. You know what I mean by that. Adeline will get a toy, and Meredith, not Meredith, um, Nora. Nora, thank you. Nora, Meredith doesn't snatch toys from my daughter. Uh, <laughs> uh, Nora, well, she wants the toy, and it's vice versa. Nora will have a toy, and Adeline, it belongs to her, and she just, you see her like, well up and it's like I gotta get you know um, my favorite story from all of it is we had this dumb little tent in our house why we have it I don't know it's probably like this tall Adeline makes me go in it all the time which is comical to see um, and the openings like this big and they were both in there and the tent flap was down they're both in the tent and they're playing and they're happy then all of a sudden my wife told me she just the tent just started shaking okay and then and then they're like ah! They hear like screaming in the tent, and they both run out crying to their own mother. Like she's, it's just they both have been at, and all over. They're not sure. Some toy set it off, and they both wanted it. Jealousy, and a two and a. Is that our God? Yes. 
know, God is being relational is protective of those relationships in a good way. In a good way, absolutely. Yes, in a good way. Okay. So we hear this word jealousy. We hear this word selfish. My argument in all of this would, would be if God were selfish, would that be okay? Why? He's God. Now, that answer is not going to satisfy people over there. So let's dig a little deeper into this. If God were selfish, why would that be okay? Because he owns everything. Wait, he owns everything. He is the only being in all of creation who has the right to be selfish. Do you see what that means? When something belongs to you and someone takes it from you, is it selfishness? If you have money in your bank account and someone steals your identity and takes all of your money out of your retirement, are you selfish for trying to get that money back or trying to fix that situation? Why not? It's yours. It belongs to you. Now, all glory...